Well, hey, Rocky Peak, it's great to be with you uh, again. And uh, if we haven't met yet, my name's Michael. I'm one of the pastors here at the church. It's just so good to be with you. Trisha just talked about it, but it was amazing this week being together, uh, worshiping the Lord, kind of coming together, pursuing him during encounter. It was so, so great to, to uh, see so many, to meet some people uh, I had never met before and just uh, get to know them. It's just an awesome time. And so it's so great to have you. And I really hope that you will come out and join us uh, at these prayer nights this week. What I'm sort of asking you, is that if you uh, love Rocky Peak, if, um, if this is your church home, um, and you don't have any big health concerns, you know, over COVID, that you just come out uh, at least once each of the three next weeks as we seek the Lord each week with fasting and prayer and worship. And like Trisha said, it's going to be an incredible time, um, not only... Um, you know, not only are we going to be, you know, a couple hours together, but we're going to mix it up with a lot of different elements in it. And so it's going to be a really great time uh, together. And for those of you that you're not able to come this last week to encounter, maybe there, you have health issues or you're out of town or whatever, just know that we, we love you. We're looking forward to see you when we can gather together again. Now, in just a minute, we're going to go into our time of teaching. But before we do that, I just want to tell you, share one really cool thing too as well. As you know, this month we're doing these summer service initiatives. So we did the, the, uh, the clothing drive to, to kind of fill the, uh, the, the thrift center, uh, the San Fernando uh, thrift store uh, to, to help them out a few weeks ago. And then last weekend, 150, 200 of you came out as we packed uh, boxes for, for Children's Hunger Fund. So I don't know if you knew this, but as a church, we donated $25,000 uh, to be able to purchase the food through, through uh, Children's Hunger Fund to, uh, to prepare uh, 2,000 boxes for families here that are really struggling in Southern California. But what's really cool is this week that we got a, an email from uh, Dave Phillips, who's the, the head of uh, Children's Hunger Fund, and he also, he, he, um, he has deep roots here at Rocky Peak. He actually used to go here way back, I think in the early 90s or something like that. But we've had a long-term relationship with Dave. We just think the world of him. Uh, but I just wanted to share that with you because he said, uh, to, he wrote to me and to Brian uh, Moorhead, our, our uh, our global ministries pastor, and he said, Mike, Brian, he said, I want to thank, personally thank you for your support of Rocky Peak family this weekend in helping us to fill over 2,000 food packs for children and families in need in our local communities. This is such a godsend for us. As you probably already know, because the church has been unable to gather since March, our food pack supply has been totally depleted. But he said, your generosity will allow home deliveries of food to continue in Southern California for several weeks into the future. So thank you so much for being that possible, for making that possible. So I just wanted to thank you uh, for that. And just thank you as a church for your ongoing uh, continual generosity as we go through this challenging season, not only to support the ministries here, but as you have been so generous and we are able to continue to reach out and support ministries in our area and around the world. So thank you so much for that. But we're going to be going to our time of teaching right now. And so if you haven't already done so, hopefully you have, but you've downloaded uh, your favorite form of the message note sheet. Uh, and we're going to jump in and continue our series. Let's, let's pray together and then we'll jump in. Father, we're just so thankful to be gathered here in Jesus' name. We're so thankful for the week we've had, for being able to gather on our campus again for the first time to worship you, to pursue you in prayer, with worship, in fasting. And as we continue in this very important month, God, as we continue this series on spiritual warfare, and what does it look like to engage in battle and to take our stand in a very difficult time? We pray that you would come today by the power of your spirit. I pray for a great freedom as I teach. I pray that as we all listen in, that we'd be listening for the voice of your spirit, that you'd speak loud and clearly, and that we'd all be, be impacted, that our eyes would be open, so we would be better, uh, better prepared to take our stand in this very important battle. We pray this in Jesus' name, and everyone said, amen. Well, our story starts today in a weekday, and they're heading down for the beach. I mean, this is where they've been going uh, it's kind of part of their protocol now for the last several weeks. And as they walk through the town, uh, people are going to work. Uh, kids are playing in the street. This, the, uh, the town's bustling. Uh, but for them, they're going to spend most of the day down by the seashore. But by the afternoon, they've done what they've came to do. And now it's time to walk back through the city. 
And as they go back through the city, their leader takes a surprise direction. He stops at one of the local businesses, one that they would never expect. And what surprises him more is the dinner invitation that flows out of that encounter. And so now it's the evening, and they find themselves at a dinner party they never in a million years could have pictured themselves attending. But as weird and as strange as it seems to be there, what's about to happen next is even more strange. Because as they're there at the party, the door opens and a group of people come in that they seem even more uncomfortable than they are to be there. And uh, the longer they're there, the more the tension is mounting. And you can sense a confrontation building. And the only question is who will start it? How will it unfold? And most of all, where will it lead? Well, today we are continuing our series that we've been in for the last, really almost two months now, called The Resurrected King, Spiritual Warfare in Times of Challenge. And if you're, you're brand new, I want to welcome you uh, to kind of very important series. And what we've been learning in this series is that as followers of Jesus, we, we come to Jesus, we enter into a new level of spiritual warfare with an enemy that's very real, that's uh, very powerful, and very strategic. Um, and that if we, if we want to win this battle, uh, we need to plug into the power of our resurrected king who has conquered the powers of darkness uh, and put on what, what uh, the Bible describes as our full armor so we can take our stand and, and win this battle. And so I want to start today by going back to this key passage of Scripture that's kind of grounded us every week. It's in the, the letter from the Apostle Paul to a group of Christ followers in the ancient city, one of the largest cities in the Roman Empire, uh, the city of Ephesus. And so if you have your Bibles, you have your apps, why don't you open them up, turn them on. We're gonna turn to Ephesians chapter six. We'll pick it up at verse 10, just to set the stage for where we're going. There in your note sheet, you have a section called Spiritual Warfare, the Belt of Truth Continued. So, in chapter 6, this is how Paul starts his famous passage. He says, finally, be strong in the Lord, in our resurrected king, which as we, we've learned in this series and earlier in the letter, has conquered the powers of sin and death by his, um, by his death on the cross. So be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so you can take your stand against the devil's schemes, his strategies, the Greek methodeias. He said, because our, our struggle, it's not against flesh and blood. It often looks like that, but it's actually kind of the power behind the flesh and blood, the, the rulers and the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. And so therefore, you need to put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, when the battle's raging, that you can take your stand, uh, you can stand your ground, and after you've done everything to stand. And so, so this is sort of the core challenge of this whole passage and of this series. You've come to Jesus, you've entered into this new level of spiritual warfare. We're up against some very real enemies in the unseen realm. They're powerful, they're brilliant, they're strategic. They're out to destroy you. If you wanna win, uh, you're gonna have to kind of uh, delve deep into your relationship with the resurrected king, kind of plug into his power, and then take up the full armor of God so you can take your stand. And from this point on, then he goes on to list seven pieces of armor, equipment that we need to put on, pick up, or practice in order to win this battle. And so now the next one, so, and so the next verse, and he gives us the first piece of this armor, which we've been talking about the last few weeks. So in verse 14, he says, stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist. All right, so we, we've learned this in this series that the enemy's primary weapon against us is deception. Therefore, our primary weapon is truth. It's the truth, Jesus said, that sets us free. So Paul says the first step in this spiritual battle is to buckle this belt of truth around your waist. Now, if you've been here the last few weeks, one of the things we've learned is that when Paul talks about truth, he's not just talking about kind of truth in a very restricted sense. He's talking about kind of big picture spiritual truth 
that takes in a lot of different angles. And so if you were here several weeks ago, I introduced this diagram there on your uh, note sheet that I call the three sides of truth. I, and you'll notice that in the middle, we've, we've labeled it spiritual truth, that's a topic, but we're kind of breaking down spiritual truth into three sides to look at truth from three different angles. We're talking about personal truth, like who we are in Christ, how our relationship with God works. We talked about philosophical truth, kind of big picture worldview, ideological truth that the enemy uses to control this world. And then finally, doctrinal truth, big truth about who God is, who we are, how our relationship with God works. Now, as I've said before, these three sides, they, they overlap with one another. And yet I think there's great value value in breaking it down and looking at spiritual truth from these three different angles to better understand catches the specific lies the enemy uses to destroy a culture or destroy our personal lives. So today the topic on the table is personal truth. And what I want to do is I want to break down personal truth into three important components that make up personal truth, to understand how the enemy attacks us in our life, the lies that he tells, and what does it look like to embrace the truth, put on the belt of truth, so we can win that battle. So there in your note sheet, you have a section that's called the belt of truth, three key concepts. So let's jump in. Uh, for each key concept, I have a key word, all right? So the first word I'd like you to write down is the word identity, right? So if we're going to win the spiritual battle, we have to be clear on our identity. Now, if you were here a couple weeks ago, uh, Dre touched on this in his message. Uh, and what I want to do today is just build on what he said, because this is so critical for us winning the spiritual battle. In fact, much of the spiritual battle in your life and my life comes at the point of understanding our identity in Christ. Now, you say, what do you mean by your, our identity? It, and you're like that, that's sort of a mysterious word. What I mean is just who you are as a follower of Jesus, uh, how your relationship with Jesus works, with God works through Jesus, what has happened to you when you came to Christ, uh, what changed at the core uh, of your, kind of the core of your, your, uh, your, your tr uh, true self, and uh, the future that God has planned for you, right? So it's kind of like who you are, what's happened to you, the future. That's all wrapped up in identity. Now, there are several passages in the New Testament that talk about kind of our identity in Christ. But what I want to do today is I want to focus on one of the most important that happens to come, uh, probably by no accident, here in the very first letter, uh, first chapter of Paul's letter to the Ephesians. So catch this. In Ephesians 6, Paul says, take your stand, strap on the belt of truth. Well, a big part of that truth he's commanding us to strap on is the truth about who we are in Christ that he's been telling us on, from the very beginning of this letter. So what I want to do is I want us to walk us through the opening few paragraphs of the first chapter of Ephesians where Paul kind of lays out, here's who we are in Christ, here's what's happened, uh, here's how God thinks about us, uh, here's how we've been changed at a core level, here's what our future is, just as an example of what, what I'm talking about in terms of identity. So there in your note sheet, I put a passage uh, from Ephesians 1, but I put it in the New Living Translation just because it's so easy to follow. And uh, we're going to be moving quickly. We're not going to spend a lot of time in this, but I just want to give you a sense of what I mean by identity. So Paul starts off praising God for, for who God is and what he's done for us in Christ. So he says, uh, all praise to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, catch us who has blessed us, catch us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms, in other words, that God has to offer because we're unified with Christ. So Paul says, as a follower of Jesus, when you step into a relationship with Jesus, you get everything God has to offer. Now notice, it's not every physical blessing, right? That'll come in the next life. But he says, every spiritual blessing. If you're a follower of Jesus, you get the whole package. It's not like I get certain amount of spiritual blessings and you get a different amount, more or less than me. It's like when we're connected to Jesus, you're connected to Jesus, I'm connected to Jesus, we have everything Jesus has to offer. 
every spiritual blessing. Now, he's gonna go on and he's gonna begin to enumerate and illustrate uh, some of these blessings. What is he talking about? So he goes on and he says, uh, even before he made the world, so go back as far as you want, before, like before creation, uh, God loved us. I want you to circle that. That God, this, this is where the story starts. It starts with this God who loves us. So before time began, before you and I were ever born, that he loved us and he chose us in Christ, kind of before time began, to be holy and without fault in his eyes. So what Paul is saying is if you're a follower of Jesus, what we know about each other is that before time began, that God chose you and he, he loved you and he chose you and he chose you to bring you into a relationship and somehow, we'll get to this in a minute, but to somehow to make us holy, to make us right, to restore our relationship in spite of who we would be. And so he goes on and he says, so God decided in advance to adopt us into his family. So catch this, not just to forgive us, but to adopt us. And so if you're a follower of Jesus, one thing that we learn about you is that you are like a son. You are a daughter of, of our creator. And so he, uh, he, he, uh, to adopt us into his own family by bringing us to himself through Jesus Christ. This is what he wanted to do. And catch this, it gave him great pleasure, great joy in this. And it says, so we praise God for the glorious grace that catch, he poured out on us who belong to his dear son. So catch this, not a little bit of grace, but when God shows you, he like poured out on you this incredible grace. And then he goes on and he says, he is so rich in kindness and grace that he purchased our freedom as if we were slaves. He purchased us from slavery but with the blood of his son and he forgave our sins. And of course, this goes to the heart of the gospel message, that we were uh, a rebel race. Uh, he didn't choose us, you or me, because we deserve it, because of our performance. In fact, in chapter two of Ephesians, he'll say that before we came to Christ, that we were part of this rebel fallen race and we were following the great, uh, the great enemy, the devil, that we were being following the ways of the world, that we were dead in our sin, um, that we, we were living a life of rebellion. There's nothing about us, but God chose us. And now how is he able to do that? How is he able to pull this up to turn rebels into sons and daughters? Well, the price that was paid was his life for our life. There was a great exchange that happened. He took the penalty. This was the, the price that he paid to rescue us. And then he goes on, he said, he has showered his kindness on us. Notice again this over, like an overflowing language. He has showered his kindness, not a little bit, but he showered it uh, along with wisdom and understanding. Now, it gets better. So God has, God has now revealed to us his mysterious will regarding Christ. Remember, Christ means king. In, in Greek, it means Messiah or king, um, which, he is, which he is to fulfill his own good plan. So catch this. So God has a plan. When you came to Jesus, you, you became part of this plan. You discovered you were part of the plan. And this is the plan. Here's the plan. At the right time in human history... He will bring everything together under the authority of Christ. Everything in heaven and earth. The way I like to, I often describe this is he, that he is gonna bring uh, all things uh, healed and restored under the leadership of King Jesus. All things in heaven and earth healed and restored under the leadership of King Jesus. And he says, furthermore, because we're united with Christ, we have received an inheritance from God. Now what he's talking about is the future next life, the new heavens, the new earth that is coming. And he said, for he chose us in advance and he makes everything work out according to his plan. So God has this epic plan. And when you came to Jesus to bring all heaven and earth healed and restored under his leadership, when you came to Jesus, we discovered we are part of that plan. We've each have a role to play. 
in chapter four, it says we've each been gifted by the Holy Spirit to play that, that role. Now, when you believed in Christ, uh, he identified you as his own, put his seal on you by giving you the Holy Spirit. So we come to Jesus, we, we receive the gift of the Holy Spirit who will lead us, guide us, and empower us to live a whole new life. And he says this gift of the Holy Spirit uh, is his seal on our life that we belong to him. He said this was promised long ago, talking about the Old Testament, the promise from the Spirit would come. Now he says that the Spirit is God's guarantee that he will give us the inheritance he promises. Future, that the promise of the future is guaranteed by our experience in the Holy Spirit here and now. And he said that he's purchased us to be his own people. He did this so that we would praise and glorify him. Okay, so this is an example of what I would describe as a great identity passage. Are you get it, catching the idea? I'm saying the word identity is a little mysterious, like who you are in Christ. But all we're saying is that when Jesus, uh, when you came to Christ, um, something happened to you. And, and you discovered that you had been chosen before time, that you are deeply loved. And the Father chose you not only to forgive you for all of your crimes against this kingdom, but he chose to adopt you into his family. Then when you came into his family, he gave you the gift of his spirit to lead you, to guide you, to transform you. He gave you certain spiritual gifts so that you could carry out an important part of this plan that he's working to bring all heaven and earth healed and restored under his leadership. And finally, that that the Holy Spirit is his promise to you that everything he's promised about the future and the new world that's coming and your role in it will be completed. He will carry it out. So this is an example of an, what I'm calling an identity passage. Who you are, uh, how your relationship with God works, what's happened to you, the future you have. Now, you say, so why is it so important when we talk about personal truth that we understand our true identity? Well, the reason is this is one of the areas where Satan uh, loves to attack us the most at the place of our identity. Let me give you an example of just like why this is so important. I don't know if you've ever heard this. You may have because it's fairly well known. But you know, when, when trainers, like animal trainers, are training baby elephants, uh, they're very careful to train them young because this is gonna be like a massive animal that is one day, one day gonna weigh many, many tons and have tremendous power. It's important to train them when they're young. And so one of the things that trainers will do, like in a circus, for example, is that when the, when the elephant is still very young, they will take an iron stake, like 10 feet long, sometimes as long as 10 feet long, and they will drive this huge iron stake deep into the earth, and then they will take a very heavy chain, and they'll attach it to the stake, and then attach the other end to the elephant's leg. Now, this little elephant, from what I understand, elephants aren't super bright, but they have amazing memories, right? So they're not super bright. So this, this elephant, he just wants to go out and play like baby elephants do, right? He doesn't want to be staked down. And so he's going to try to escape this stake, and he's going to pull against it. And just kind of over and over, he's going to pull against this stake. And it's not super bright, and so he's just going to keep on doing it. And they're told like hundreds, thousands of times, but finally, it comes to a place in its life where it's just, it's convinced that it can never pull out the stake. So it stops trying. But the irony is, is that once that baby elephant has been trained, he will never try again. Because in his mind, it's impossible for him when he's tied to a stake to be pulled out. And here's the irony. When that animal grows up and weighs ton, so many tons, you don't even need an iron stake to keep him in place. All you need is a small wooden stake and a very thin rope tied around his leg. And now that he's this massive beast, he could remove that with just a flick of his leg. But you know what? He'll never try because he doesn't think he has the capacity he still has this amazing memory. He remembers those thousands and thousands. So, so his catches, his past is defining his present. 
Like he doesn't know who he is. He doesn't know the power that he has. He's a prisoner of the past and what's been done to him in the past. And this is how spiritual warfare works at the level of identity, is that the enemy often attacks us at the level of our identity. And if he can get us to think about ourselves in terms of the past instead of the terms of the present, who we once were instead of who we are, he wins. Like, let me just give you some examples. Like, for example, if he can get you to doubt God's love for you, that you believe that, yes, God loves people, and you kind of believe that theologically, but in your case, what it feels like emotionally is that it's more like he tolerates you. Uh, If you believe that in general God forgives sin, but in your life there are certain sins from your past that you believe you're not really sure he can ever forgive those particular sins. Maybe, maybe in your life, maybe, maybe it was a murder. Maybe it was a abortion or abortions. Maybe it was a divorce. Maybe it was something that was done to you uh, or something you did to someone else. But there's something in your past that, that you, you really, you believe theoretically in forgiveness, but in your case, you're not sure if God has really forgiven you. You know what the Bible says about being a son or daughter of God, but maybe you grew up in a very dysfunctional, unhealthy home and there wasn't a great relationship there with a father or a mother. And so it doesn't really speak to you. That you, you find at times that you're not really sure that God has a purpose for your life. Um, you're not sure that you really have the gifts or the personality to serve him in any significant way. Yes, you believe in forgiveness at one level, and yet some of the things you've done or have been done to you have left you in a place where, where you, you, you believe you're a Christian, but you're not sure you can ever be used in a really significant way. You see, what happens is that maybe there's a, 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 a sin in your life, there's a habit, there's an addiction, and, and deep, there's been times in your past you've tried to beat it. You've tried to defeat this, but you've just been unsuccessful. It's like you're sort of like the baby elephant that's pulled against that, that stake in the ground 10 feet. And after pulling so many times, you're pretty convinced that you can never pull that out. And so you've come to Christ and you're a follower of Jesus, but deep down, you don't think you'll ever beat that. You don't think you'll ever beat this uh, this, this struggle with sexual sin. You'll never be able to walk in sexual purity. You'll never escape from pornography. You'll never come to a place where you don't struggle with this, this pride and envy and this bitterness or this hatred you have for someone in your life who's hurt you. You're like that young elephant that's pulled over and over and you haven't been able to pull that out on your own and so you're, you're pretty convinced it can never be. And so what happens is that we don't know who we are. We come to Christ, or maybe we've been a follower of Jesus for a long time, but we've never discovered really who we are. And as long as we don't know who we are, we're like a huge elephant that could move into a different future, pull that stake out, but we're tied to our past. Right? So this is how the enemy uh, attacks us. And so if we're going to move forward, we talk about the belt of truth. A big part of that truth is understanding who you are in Christ, what he's done for you, his tremendous love for you, the power available to you in the Holy Spirit, the gifts that he's given you, the purpose in the life, the future that he has planned. It's really interesting that this is why I believe in the, in the letter to the Ephesians two times in chapter one and chapter three, the, the apostle says, this is what I'm praying for you. And what's so interesting is he's not praying that God does something new in their lives. He is praying that God would open their eyes so they could see who God is and who they are already, what he's done for them, their true identity. For example, in chapter one, in Ephesians chapter one, uh, after this opening passage about the, you know, uh, kind of who we are in Christ, Paul goes right into this prayer, what he's praying for them. 
And he says there on your note sheet in Ephesians chapter one, he says, here's what I'm praying. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit, the Holy Spirit of wisdom and catch us revelation. That our eyes will be open. I, I don't know if you've experienced, but in the Christian life, there's a tremendous difference between knowing something intellectually and knowing it spiritually. You can study something for years, you can read your Bible for years, and all of a sudden, one day, the Holy Spirit just open your, opens your eyes to the truth of what the Bible is describing, and it's like you see it for the first time, and it sets you free. The truth sets you free. So he's praying for them that God's Holy Spirit would open their eyes to the truth about who God is and who they are, the true identity in Christ. He says, so I'm praying that so you may know him better. I pray the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you may know the hope, the hope he's referring to the next life, the future that's coming. So you might really, I'm praying God would open your eyes so you're clear on the reality of the next life and what's coming. And he said, I'm praying that you would, your eyes would be open to the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people, God's inheritance. He's talking about the incredible beauty of this new community of Christ's followers. We're gonna live together in love and unity for all, cre- uh, for all eternity. And he says, and finally I'm praying that God would open the eyes of your heart so you could see his inc- incomparably great power for us who believe. He says that, you know, you've come to Jesus, you've been united to the resurrected king, and he goes on to say he's conquered the powers of darkness. Now I'm just opening your eye, I'm praying that God would open your eyes so you could see the power that's available to you in Christ, right? So this is where we have to start. When we talk about buckling on the belt of truth in terms of our personal life, we've got to start in the area of identity. Who you are as a follower of your true identity. Like you're not the baby elephant anymore. You, in Christ, you have received everything he has to offer. And so, so that's the truth about you right? The truth about you is you're deeply loved. The truth about you is you've been specifically gifted. The truth about you has been chosen before time. The truth about you is you receive the gift of the Spirit to lead, to guide, and empower. The truth about you is this amazing future. That's the truth. And so we need the Holy Spirit to open our eyes because this is the truth that will lead us to victory in spiritual battle, right? So the first, the first key component of personal truth is, uh, is identity. The second key component, the second key concept is what I'm calling authenticity. Like if we want to win in the spiritual battle, we have to learn to embrace authenticity in our lives. Now, you say, what do you mean by authenticity? What I mean by authenticity is that we have to learn that when it comes to our relationship with God, if we want to win the spiritual battle, if we want to be transformed, we want to become like our creator, that we have to learn to be radically honest with ourselves about ourselves, what we've done, what we're thinking, what we're feeling, kind of the motives, what, why we do what we do, that if we want to be transformed, we have to learn to embrace the truth about ourselves. We have to embrace authenticity. Now, to understand this, to get at this, uh, I want to go back to the story that we started the day with. And we started the day with a story about this group that had uh, walked through the town. They'd gone down to the seashore, which is what they've been doing for the last few weeks, And uh, then late in the day, they come back, they make a surprise stop at one of the local businesses, um, and then they, that leads to a surprise invitation uh, to a dinner party. And when they get there, it's super awkward, they're kind of awkward, but it gets really awkward when this new group comes in, they can feel uh, the tension rising, a confrontation's coming, they just don't know exactly how, how, when, who's going to initiate it. Well, this is a true story from the life of Jesus, and, and frankly, it's one of my favorite stories. It's told both in Mark chapter two and Matthew chapter nine. But uh, as the story goes, uh, one day Jesus and his, some of his disciples, it was still fairly early in his ministry, uh, they went down to the seashore, to, the, to the, the Sea of Galilee. 
And he, was, he begins teaching like he was doing in those days. People are coming, large crowds. But late in the day, uh, he's done with that. So he walks through the town. Now, this is the town of Capernaum. For those of you who've been with us to Israel, you've been to Israel before, so we always go there. So he goes back to the town of Capernaum. And uh, on the way, he stops at sort of a customs office. Now, Capernaum was an important city. It was on the border of two provinces, and it was on an international trade route. And so Rome had some soldiers there. There was a tax station there, a customs tax. When you're traveling through, um, you, you would be you know, taxed on your goods. And so we're introduced to a man there that's named Levi, or uh, we know him better as Matthew, the, the author of the first book, first gospel in our New Testament. But uh, Matthew is what we would describe as a super sinner. I'm not going into all the details of that, but just basically for, some, for a lot of reasons, both religious, spiritual, social, political, uh, he was sort of a pariah in Jewish culture. And so he, he would be seen as a, like a super sinner, an obvious sinner, someone like a prostitute, a thief, someone like that. And so I'm sure the disciples are a little bit uh, surprised when Jesus seeks out this Mr. Super Sinner, and he not, only, he, he not only seeks him out, right, while he's there collecting, doing his thing, but he, uh, he invites him to follow him and become his follower, to leave his occupation and come and follow him. And crazy enough, you know, Matthew says yes, and he, he does. And so Matthew, in turn, invites Jesus to a party at his house, and then Matthew invites all his super sinner friends. Now, if you're there, this has got to be just awkward. I mean, it's uh, just kind of an odd scene. You've got this, this young rabbi who's trending, you know, very popular in social media, whatever wants to see him. You've got the young, this, this young, uh, kind of young rabbi. He's, you've got this, uh, his, his kind of leadership team that's developing with him, his, his inner core. And they're in this, uh, in this house of this party with all these super sinners. It's quite the scene. And I'm sure the disciples are feeling a little bit awkward about this. It's not the sort of party they'd probably go to. Uh, but what gets really weird is that uh, later on that the door opens and in comes some, uh, uh, some Pharisees. Now, Pharisees were um, sort of like the vigilante spiritual police, very self-righteous, kind of the opposite of super sinners. And so when they, they come in, they're just really blown away by what they're seeing. This makes no sense to them uh, because in their wor- spiritual worldview, that if you want to get close to God, you need to stay far away from anyone who's not close to God. So why would this young rabbi be hanging out with super sinners? And so eventually, you know, the tension's rising, and eventually they're going to approach his disciples, not Jesus, but approach him and say, what's up with this? But Jesus hears what's going on, and so he interrupts. He, like, tackles this. He just hits hits the situation, like, head on. And so there in your note sheet, you have just a small excerpt of what he says there, but he says, on hearing this, in other words, on hearing is this, uh, the Pharisees are approaching his, his disciples, so why is he acting this way? He said, Jesus said to them, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, uh, it's the sick. And I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. And so on the surface, it sounds like what Jesus is saying is there are two kinds of people in the world. There are righteous people, healthy people, and there are unrighteous, sick people. I've only come for the second category. But as you study the life and teaching of Jesus, it becomes obvious this is not what he's saying. What he's saying is something much more profound. What he's saying is that until we realize that we're sick, that not even Jesus can help us. And of course, this was the issue with the Pharisees, that they, they didn't see themselves in need, and so they were one of the, the groups of people Jesus, uh, in general, could never really help, because they, they, they never realized or were willing to admit that they were sick, they, they needed help. And so I love this illustration Jesus uses of a doctor. It's perfect, because if you stop and think about it, uh, I don't care if you have the best doctor in all the world, if you go to the doctor, if, if you don't go to the doctor, or if you go to the doctor and you're not honest about your symptoms, or you're not willing to take the test the doctor orders to find out what's wrong with you, you're never going to get healed. Right? And so what Jesus is saying is that he's only come to help people who realize that they're sick and are willing to face the truth about themselves. 
Now, by the way, this is why confession of sin is so important in Christian uh, in, in, in the Christian life and Christian teaching, I think often we miss this. Uh, confessions about, about us feeling really bad or kind of paying for what we've done. Like, confession is just about coming into the light and being honest, radically honest with God about the truth about ourselves, who we are, what we've done, what we're thinking, what we're feeling, our motives. And the reason it's so important is like in going to the doctor, only when you're honest with your physician can they prescribe the right remedy? And so what I want you to catch is that if we want to be healed and restored, if we want to be transformed, become like our creator, that we have to learn to be radically honest with, with ourselves and then with God about kind of who we are and what's going on in our lives. And I'm pretty convinced that over the course of my life in ministry, that this is one of the biggest reasons why many Christians never experience true transformation. That they've come to Jesus, they've been converted, um, they may be kind of doing the Christian life thing, maybe no big flagrant, even no flagrant sin in their life, but they're, they're not really transformed. They're Christians, but there's something shallow about them. When you're with them, you always get the feeling that they're sort of putting on a show. They're, they're keeping up with appearances. There's a, a lack of honesty or authenticity, and it's not just with you, it's with themselves. And, and so what happens is where we do the Christian life thing, but we're not being transformed. We're not becoming who we are. We're not being transformed by the Holy Spirit. And the reason is we're living life up here at a very shallow level. We're not willing to be honest about what's really happening in us. And so we are committed to Jesus. We're a Jesus follower. But inside we're full of greed or selfishness or um, jealousy or envy or pride or lust or fears, or doubts, or questions. And yet, if anyone were to ask us about any one of those things, hey, it looks like you're struggling with anger. Oh, no, I'm not struggling with anger. H have, you ever, have you ever concerned that maybe you're, have you ever thought maybe it's your priorities? No, my priorities are, uh, it's like we're, we're living a lie. We're pretending like the Pharisees to be something we're not. And the tragedy of this is that it keeps us from being transformed. And catch this, the enemy knows this. And so one of the enemy's greatest strategies in our lives is to get us to pretend that everything is okay and to get us to live in the land of denial. His biggest fear is that you would learn to be radically honest with Jesus about what's going on because this is gonna lead to your healing and transformation. So the question is, if this is true, why would we like not be authentic? Like why would we not be honest with God, maybe others, our, ourselves, like why would we not? And I think there's a couple main reasons. The first reason is that sometimes we're just, we're afraid of change. We're afraid of accountability. You know, if we admit that we have no passion for God, if we admit that we have this deep bitterness and hatred of others, if we admit to ourselves these lustful thoughts and activities in our life, that if we start admitting that, it's gonna require that we change because we know that's not who we're created to be. And, and so sometimes if we're not willing to change, we, we'll just pretend that we're okay. And that just keeps us from having to change and deal with it. But you know, there's a second reason, and this is the one I'm so concerned about today, is that I think one of the biggest reasons why we don't feel free to be radically honest with God about who we are, what we've done, what we're thinking, what we're feeling, our motives, is that, we've, that we don't really understand our true identity in Christ. That deep down, we still believe that our relationship with God and his love for us is based on our performance. 
And so we're, we're very nervous and we're, very, we're, we're scared to death of admitting our fears, our doubts, our dark side for fear that God will somehow reject us. But as we've seen today, this is why it's so important we get clear on our identity. As we've seen today that God chose you to be a follower before time and that when he called you, you were under the influence of the big three enemies. You were dead in your sin. You were walking according to the ways of the world, Ephesians 2. You were following the ruler of the kingdom of the air. And Paul says, like the rest, you are a son of disobedience, destined for judgment, right? And so once we get clear, so if we're not clear on that, on who we are in Christ and his love in us, that, that he loved us while we were his enemies, he came, if we're not clear on that, then what can happen is often in our life, we're always trying to pretend to be better than we are for fear that God will not love us if we don't match up. And so the beauty of the gospel is it sets us free uh, to be able to be radically honest with God, ourselves, and others. And this leads to an incredible freedom. I'm telling you, there are very few things in our life will lead to more freedom than understanding God's love for you and that the the death of Jesus covers your sin, it really does. You're truly forgiven and you are deeply loved and that Jesus is not against you, he is for you. He is not your judge, he is now your healer, he's your doctor. You know, when I, when I go to the doctor, um, I don't have any trouble telling the doctor everything that's wrong with me because I know that, that hopefully he will be able to prescribe what I need to get better. Like it would be, I, I would never like hold back on symptoms, right? And I'm telling you, there's an incredible freedom that comes when we realize that Jesus is for us, that he's our doctor. He's not come to condemn, he's come to save. That he's already taken the condemnation on the cross and so now he's for you, not against you. And this just frees you up to be radically honest and I'm telling you, I don't know of anything else that will transform your relationship with God faster than learning this freedom that we have in Christ. He's for us and not against us. We see something in our life that's wrong. We don't have to hide that. We can bring that. And once we realize that, Satan loses ground in our lives because his goal is to keep us in the dark. If we stay in the dark, then we'll never be transformed because we never come to the doctor and give him the chance to bring us healing, all right? So the second key concept, second key ingredient uh, is authenticity. Now, number three, number three is integrity. And so uh, if we want to win the spiritual battle, we have to be committed to a life of integrity. We have to embrace the truth, put on the belt of truth, uh, in the realm of integrity. Now, this is interesting. Earlier in Ephesians, early in the letter to Ephesians, Paul had said in chapter four, he gave us God's big picture vision for our life. He said that God's, God's big uh, picture vision for your life when you come to Christ is you, if you had to summarize it in a single word would be the word transformation. He wants to transform you to be like your creator again. And of course, one of the most important things about our creator is his integrity that God is a God of truth. He's never lied in his eternal life. Like he's, he's always speaks the truth. He, he never speaks a lie. He always carries out his promises in our life. He always keeps his commitment. And this is a lot what allows us to trust him. And so when we come to Jesus, one of his top priorities is to restore integrity to our life that you and I would become a person of truth, that we'd speak the truth, that we would not resort to deception to manipulate others, and that we would keep our promises. And not only would this lead to transformation in our life, it leads to a transformation in all of our relationships because relationships are built on trust. And whenever lies, deception, 
a lack of reliability, breaking of promises, when that enters into a relationship, that relationship is always damaged and if, le- if, a- if allowed to go on, begins to die, right? So it's interesting because in Ephesians 4, when Paul is talking about this big picture, epic vision, that God's vision is for you to be transformed, be like your creator, he begins to give us some, a long list of practical examples. This is what it looks like. This is what you need to put off, and this is what you need to put on, kind of put off your old clothes, put on the new clothes, in order to be transformed to be like your creator. And the very first example he gives is in the area of integrity. Look there at your note sheet. In chapter four, he says, uh, this is from the New Living Translation again. He says, let the spirit renew your thoughts and attitudes. So remember in chapter one, you've come to Christ. You've received the gift of the Holy Spirit. That's who you are. At the core of your being, you've been changed. You're no longer the same at the deepest part of you. So he's saying, so be who you are. He says, let the spirit renew your thoughts and attitudes. Put on your new nature, this identity, your new nature, catch us created to be like God, right? This is the big picture vision. Be like your creator again, truly righteous and holy. And now here's his first, he's gonna go a long list, like a, a chapter and a half or so of here's what it looks like to be transformed. And the very first example deals with integrity. He says, so stop telling lies. Let us, uh, let us tell our neighbors the truth, for we are all parts of the same body, this new community. He said, we're, hey, we're all part of the new community. Stop telling lies. That will destroy the new community. And it's interesting, in the sister letter to Ephesians, which we call the book of Colossians, written about the same time, a lot of overlapping, he says the exact same thing. He says, There in your note sheet, uh, do not lie to each other since you've taken off your old self with its practices. You put on this new self, catch this, which is being renewed, an ongoing process in the knowledge, in knowledge, in the image of the creator. When you come to Jesus, you enter this uh, transformation process and that's what the enemy wants to stop in your life. And he says, one of the first examples he gives, what it looks like to be like your creator is to be a person of integrity, to speak the truth. So when we talk about putting on the belt of truth, we're talking about first, hey, putting on your new, like understanding your new identity, who you really are. Then we talk about that allows us to, to live a life of authenticity, being radically honest with God, which leads to our transformation. And that in turn leads to a life of integrity. And anytime we're kind of violating anyone, anytime we are, we're missing out on our identity, anytime we're not being honest with our authenticity, anytime we, uh, we choose deception and lie in our relationships, we give up our integrity, that we are opening the door for Satan to attack and to, uh, to, to build a place to attack us in our lives. Now, so here's what I wanna do as we wrap this up. I want to give you just a, a quick opportunity to do some self-evaluation. And so there on your note sheet, there's a section called the Belt of Truth, three key questions. Now, we don't have time to go into great detail with any of these. But the reason I'm giving them to you is so that this week you can reflect, pray, ponder. As we go through this month where we're pursuing the Lord and, and it's a month of repentance. God, is there anything in my life that you want to speak to me? These would be great questions to take before the Lord. All right. So let's just jump in real quickly. So number one, the first question is, do you know who you are? Do you know who you are? This is the identity question, right? We, we've talked about this, about who we are as followers of Jesus. What's the truth? And to what extent are you in touch with that? Now catch this, I'm not talking about this just at an intellectual level. I'm not simply asking, do you know what the Bible says about who you are? What I'm asking is to what extent is what the Bible says real to you? To what extent have your eyes been opened to see the truth that sets you free? 
Because when God opens our eyes, it impacts us not just intellectually, but emotionally, spiritually at every level. It really, it changes us. And so many times in our life that we can be defined by our past, not by the present of who we are. Like, like the elephant, we're defined by our past, by what happened to us when we were young. So many of us were, were defined by what our, our parents said about us or what an ex-spouse said about us or about certain life experiences we've had, things that we've done in the past, things that have been done to us. This is what defines us. It's how we think about ourselves. We're like that young elephant that has now grown up and we are huge and in Christ we have so much power and yet we don't even realize it because we're defined by the past. And so the question is, do you know who you are. The second question, how honest are you? How honest are you? And this, I'm really talking about how honest are you with yourself about yourself? How honest are you with God about your truest, deepest self? So this, of course, is the authenticity question. And, uh, and until we learn to be radically honest with God, as long as we're pretending then Satan will have a field day in our life. He can keep us from it. As long as Satan can keep you from going to the doctor, you will never be healed, right? So the question is, in your relationship with God, in your relationship with yourself, how radically honest are you learning to be about what you've done, um, what you're thinking, what you're feeling, and your motivations? Like I said earlier, very few things will transform your relationship with God faster than learning who you truly are in Christ in such a way you can be authentic. And, and the freedom that brings your relationship with God when you realize he is not against you, he's for you, and you can run to him with whatever is wrong with you, uh, almost excited you found something else wrong because now he can begin to work on that and to bring healing in that area of your life. And then finally, the third question is how honest are you with others? And of course, this is the integrity question. And, and the, the most important answer is not how you answer it, but how those closest to you answer it. Right, so if you have an integrity problem, chances are you may not know it. And so many times we have to look at a different way and say, okay, for, for those who are closest to me, maybe it's a spouse, maybe it's a friend, maybe it's my children, uh, maybe it's people in my life, or whatever, my coworkers, would they say I'm a person of integrity? When you speak, do people feel like they can take it to the bank? They, the thought that you would lie to them never crosses their mind. I thought you'd shade the truth to manipulate or just never crosses their mind. When you make a commitment, people trust you because they, they learn you're a person who keeps your commitments. You, you follow up on your promises. You see, this, this, sets, this not only sets us free, it leads to an incredible uh, level of relationship with others because they can trust us. And so the question is, how honest are you with others? And so here's what I want you to catch, is that if we want to win the spiritual battle, we have to put on the belt of truth. And when we talk about putting on the belt of personal truth, it's being clear about who we are in Christ. It's about living a life of radical honesty with ourselves and with God. And then finally, it's about living a life of integrity with others. At any time we compromise in any of those three areas, we are giving the enemy a place to attack in our life. And so may this be a week that as we reflect on this together, as we go before the Lord, we just kind of say, Lord, I, I just need your insight. I need your wisdom. Would you open my eyes to who I am in you? And then let that lead to a life of radical authenticity because your grace is so big. It's easy to be honest so that we can be transformed and live this life of integrity with others. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this time that we can talk about these important things, this, 
this uh, how we win the spiritual battle in the area of truth. And God, we've talked about some incredible things here, incredibly important, and I know that's only by your Holy Spirit can you open our eyes, like Paul said, open the eyes of our heart to know the truth about who you are and how you feel about us and what has happened in our life and the power that we have in you and the future that's coming. God, only you can do that. So we pray today that by the power of your Holy Spirit, as we come under your leadership, you'll be opening our eyes to spiritual truth so we can put on this belt of truth and take our stand. We pray this in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen.